gospel. That is probably one of the most used words in the church today. The gospel. The gospel, the news that Jesus has died and resurrected on your behalf so that if you would put your trust in him, you'll be with him forever. And yet, Something doesn't seem right when we constantly have to be talking about it, to be explaining it, to be dealing with it over and over again. And it seems to communicate that although we might mentally understand the concept of what this gospel is, there's a lot more that's still left to be applied in our lives. One of the ways that we know this is not just because it's spoken of so much, the gospel, because it is important. But one of the reasons that we also find that the gospel needs a lot more time to be expanded on is because the gospel in the original language literally means good news. And yet, when you ask people, if you were to poll just the general public about their perception of the church, who has this thing called the good news, do you feel good going to church? What does the church communicate to you? Or what is your perception of it? Now, the vast majority of people, if you were to just pull people in the streets who they go to church or not, would likely look at the church and say, oh, to be a good Christian, to be a quote unquote good follower, a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ means that you just live a good moral life. Right? You just do all the right do's. You avoid all the bad things. And God's probably happy with you. And yet, because of that misconception, even though many people might know mentally that works and these things are not the way or the means to get saved, the very fact that we still continue to talk about the gospel at length today shows that we as not just a church here, but we as an entire body of Christ, we as a people, humanity in general, I sense that we're still struggling to understand the relationship between works, faith, and our own lives today. As we come into this series, and we're starting a series on Galatians, this is the very subject at hand that Paul is trying to address. Now, the Galatian church is, is, a, very, is a very interesting context that we're stepping into. I want to make this note. When we read the Bible... Did you know that the epistles, the letters, are often the most difficult to understand? Let me explain why. Have you ever tried reading someone else's mail? Could you imagine you had access to my email account? And you look through different emails, different personalized letters, and you're trying to understand why this person is writing what they're writing to Pastor Billy. See, letters are the, often the hardest passages of Scripture to understand because we need to get to know the context of the people that these letters are being written to. The church in Galatia was in a lot of trouble. Let's put it that way. Um, Galatians was also Paul's, uh, one of his first epistles that he wrote. And it's also his most heated one um, and also awkward, if I could even say that. Uh, because of how he was writing against the majority culture that had been established by false teachers who had invaded the church. Now, these false teachers are often referred to as Judaizers, people who came with a Jewish background 
who weren't Christian, and yet they had an agenda where they wanted to kind of bring in a mixture. Oh, yeah, you Christians, you know, like, I'm, we're kind of like you guys. Like, yeah, we believe in grace, but the law, the law, your works, your morality, these things are what establish you. These things are what are important. And now, it wasn't just a theological mess that these Judaizers brought into the church. It was also a political mess that, were, that they were bringing in with them. Because, you see, they were trying to curry favor. They were trying to earn points, if you will, from the Jerusalem council that was back in Jerusalem away from Galatia. They were trying to win points, if you will. And so the, to these Gentiles, these Jewish authorities were coming in to provide some shell of Judaism that was no Judaism nor Christianity, but something different altogether. In a sense, they were trying to build a mini cult based around a false sense of authority that these teachers were trying to establish. And so Paul steps in. He's heard and he's caught wind of what's happening in Galatia. And you can imagine Paul, the apostle who's been commissioned to the Gentiles, is not happy. In fact, when you look at the epistle itself to Galatian, to the Galatian church, it has the shortest introduction because Paul is just getting to business. He's getting straight to the point to try to undo the mess that the community had gotten into. The community who was steeped in legalism, the community who didn't have the capacity to understand what grace, what Jesus had actually set out for them to be free from not held captive to. So this is the background that we face as we enter into this epistle. And the question that I want to kind of deal with today, as Paul deals with it in Galatians chapter 1, is this question of, what does the gospel authoritatively assure us of? You see, because the gospel has inherent authority to it. But the question that I think we all need to understand and try to get towards understanding today is, what sort of authority does the gospel carry? That no man, that no teacher can step above, but has just been given as a grace to all people. What does the gospel assure us of with its inherent authority in its message, in the fact that it is good news for us all to have today? And so if you have your Bibles with you, okay, to get to the answer to that question, we're just going to go through the text. And this is what you're going to find for the next few weeks. I'm just going to go through the passage with you so that we can travel through Galatians as a community. I want to even encourage you guys. You don't have to wait until we come to Sunday service for you to know what's next in the book. You can just read through the whole epistle yourself. Uh, I want to encourage you to do that throughout the week just so that you can come excited and prepared to see what we might discover next. Okay? So again, the question is, what does the gospel assure us of authoritatively? Okay, that's the question at hand today. So we're going to start here at Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Paul, an apostle not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary or different, that is, to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Wow. That's heavy language. Now, sometimes we have a tendency to read the Bible and act as though it's like archaic language. Wow. Let him be accursed. That sounds like fancy and a nice way of just giving like a rebuke, tap on the shoulder, right? Like be accursed, right? Oh, that's fancy. But let me tell you, when Paul uses the language... And he says, if there is anyone who comes and tries to distort and tries to twist the gospel for what it is, let him be an anathema. Literally, let a curse rest over that person. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. If there's anyone who's trying to add, distort, alter, take away from, or change the very message, the very grace by which we stand today, let him be damned. Let them be damned first for preaching to you a message, not of freedom, but a message of damnation. What's amazing is Paul, the way he prefaces this in verse 8, he says, even if we or an angel from heaven, he's covering all the bases here. Are there some of you who value your experience? Well, let me tell you this. You better be watch out who you're listening from or who you're hearing from. Because if what they preach is not true to what i have spoken to you let them be accursed paul gets straight to the point and he's very clear about how serious he is as far as how much he wants to set the record straight about what this gospel is with the community who has been distorted in their understanding of what jesus stands for in them And so in verse 10, Paul says, for I am now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Again, if you're just reading this for what it's worth, you might think, oh yeah, Paul's just talking generally about fear of man. But again, we have to be very clear about the context. Paul is doing business. He is going to battle against these Judaizers who are claiming we come to you with the true teaching that emerges from Jerusalem. We've heard the right teaching from the Jerusalem apostles. And so we've got it from them. Paul says, I'm not here to tickle anyone's ears. I'm not here to say that I'm even coming based on the authority of some other man to make you happy. I'm here to just simply make it known that I fear God more than I do any man, so I will not fear in speaking the truth to you right now. He continues on. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Boof. I don't know if that's how you usually say hi to people, but that's the way that Paul has employed his tactic here in Galatians. And so he launches into his now formal defense of the gospel, starting in verse 11. This is what he writes. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Paul at this point, now, in order to have say and sway with the people in Galatia, he needs to establish his authority. The way he begins to establish that is by articulating first where he got his gospel from. Because again, the people are coming and saying, no, 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 we got the right gospel. We heard it from these people. We heard it from these apostles, which wasn't even true. Paul comes and says, I didn't get it from any man. I didn't get it from any person that the authority of my message should rest upon any one person. I got it from our Lord himself. It was a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying this. These Jerusalem Judaizers that are in the house, they could go, oh, well, we got it from this guy. Oh, and that guy got it from this guy who's in, in this really important political seat in this place and so forth. And yet you can go from man to man to man to man. And Paul says, what man but Jesus himself? What man besides Jesus himself do I need authority from to make sure that what I'm about to tell you has any weight or authority to it. And so this might be one of the most important statements that Paul makes in the entire book, entire letter to the Galatian church. Is that he's establishing his authority, not even based on what he has done, what he is doing, the missionary journeys that he's been a part of, the seat that he holds as an apostle. He begins by establishing his authority by saying, I don't come to you with those things. I come to you by simply saying, I received this message from Christ himself. Which for us should make us feel a little bit better. Because you see, when we talk about authoritative teaching, authoritative teaching does not rest by the authority that a person or a man or a woman holds inherently to him or herself. Whatever authority comes from the pulpit, it comes because we are simply reciting. We are simply repeating. We are simply giving back to you, the people, the message that has been given to us by Jesus. Which means this. It's not because I'm behind the pulpit. That any message regarding the gospel should have any weight. The message of the gospel has weight. Because the message of the gospel has weight. This means that not just me, but anyone in this room who goes to deliver the good news, who goes to talk of Jesus Christ and a revelation of who he is through the revelation of his word, means your message has authority because of the content of what you give. Paul makes that clear. To just level the playing field. To level the playing field. And so now, you're going to expect, okay, Paul, how are you going to explain this message. Are you going to take us back? I mean, you're like Paul, the apostle. You're going to give us good theology? Are you going to tell us the Old Testament and all these things? How are you going to show to us now that the gospel that these Judaizers are bringing is not the right gospel as to the one that you're giving to us today? Look at verse 13. This is how he starts. He says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Wow, 
That is not how you want to begin your defense. If you are ever trying to argue in defense of something, what are you going to try to do? You're going to try to leverage everything that's good that you have to present. Look at me. I have planted so many churches. I have preached to so many nations, so many different people. But Paul doesn't start there. Paul begins his defense by saying, the authority comes from the message who came from Christ himself. And let me tell you how it's applied to me. I love this. He said, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism. He doesn't build the case by saying, look how awesome I am. Look at all the great works that I've done to build my authority. No. He says, look at the past that I come from. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That was Acts 9 last week. We talked about Paul's testimony. Paul doesn't have a flattering testimony. If you were to judge him based on his resume pre-Damascus Road, he is a hater, he is a persecutor, he is a murderer. There is nothing about Paul that would suppose that he should have the inherent authority to be the deliverer of this good news. Verse 14, and you've heard how I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul is not flattering himself right now. In fact, even the way that Paul talks about his zeal, his passion, he doesn't look at it as a good thing. Right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I, I appreciate it when someone goes, wow, you're so passionate, Pastor Billy. Oh, no, no. But please, keep, 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 you know? Right? I mean, we enjoy that, do we not? Because we feel, oh, yeah. My passion defines my faith. And yet Paul gives to us a very important insight on how passion and zeal could often be misleading. He says, so extremely zealous was I. For God? No. He's taking a stab and a jab against these Judaizers. He's saying, I know your game. I know you. Because I was one of you. I was like you. I was zealous, not for God, but for what? The traditions of my fathers. I was more excited about sharing the teaching that I heard from another man and how awesome and how legit he was or she was and what they said and how authoritative they were because they're in an awesome seat in the synagogue and so forth. I get it. That zeal almost destroyed the church of God. Side note, just because someone is passionate and just because they talk about faith, because they just talk about Jesus, doesn't mean that they're passionate in the right place. Just because someone talks louder doesn't mean that their passion is in the right place either. Passion is simply someone who is willing to die for a cause that they believe in, which is why we refer to the whole gospel and the end of it, Jesus' death, in particular, the passion of the Christ, what Christ was willing to die for. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, and it didn't get me anywhere. You see, Paul is making the differentiation right now between someone who rests 
on what they've received from another person and the works that they can bring in versus I have nothing to say besides the gospel is real because of the person who gave it to me. Not because of what I've added. In fact, if you follow Paul's line of thought, he's saying, I didn't add anything to it. If anything, I took away from it. Because I wasn't worthy of it. And yet in that place is where the authority of the gospel shines. So he continues in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. Wow. Look at what Paul is saying. Paul says, look, just to set the record straight, it's not like I had my encounter with Jesus on the Damascus road miraculously, and then all of a sudden I just went out and I, and I consulted with other people. Hey, do you think this is right? You, 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 think, you think what I encountered was legit or is this like, this is like spiritual attack? You know? Paul didn't do that because he understood that what he had received on the Damascus road was Christ himself. It was God showing up through the Son on that journey. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now again, some of you might fear and say, oh wow, Paul seems awfully rogue. Don't we talk about how in community we're supposed to confer and consult with one another to make sure that what we're experiencing is of the Lord? The reason why Paul brings it up in this way, at least in this moment, is to, again, go to battle against these Judaizers who are constantly trying to establish their authority in man and works. I didn't let my message rest on someone else because they said, oh, it's okay or it's right. But then he continues by saying, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those, apostles, to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, we're going to see more evidence as to why there is authority in the way that Paul is presenting this. But what's worthy of mention at this point is this. Paul, we know from the chronology that was given to us in Acts, it wasn't like Paul just immediately went into Arabia. He was blinded for three days. He was able to preach some. And then there's a gap. Which begs the question. What did Paul do for those three years in Arabia? In no man's land. There are no reports, there are no accounts that he did any sort of serious ministry. There's no serious account of him evangelizing or bringing multitudes to faith. But he spent three years in Arabia before returning back to the same location where he met Jesus in Damascus. Now, this is the part where Scripture doesn't illuminate, doesn't shed light on or say exactly what Paul did. Commentators and scholars are left to just imagine what could have been done. And so I think we have to take a moment to get into the mind and then to the life of Paul. Let me remind you of what I talked about last week. Paul had been raised to be the next it guy 
the poster child for Judaism. And Judaism probably didn't have a better candidate than Paul. He was zealous about the traditions. He was a Pharisee to the dot. As to works, no one could surpass him. He was the best candidate that you could possibly find. And so he had been studying and training for years and years and years and years in the way of the law, the Torah, the Old Testament. He was so passionate about making sure that Judaism would continue to go forth that he was willing to kill these Christians. This was the man that Paul was. If you spent your whole life with that purpose and that goal, I think it takes more than three days to undo, to relearn what this way of Jesus Christ and the gospel even means. Maybe some of you guys could relate. If you come from a background in your family, in your close relationships, where you're constantly taught that you have to do something right in order to feel valued and to have worth, those habits don't die overnight. That's why these phrases like our identity in Christ is something that we talk about all the time. To find our identity, not in what we do, but in who Jesus called us to be. His sons and daughters. I think Paul spent three years going back, revisiting everything that he had learned about the Old Testament, about the law, about all these things, and understanding it once again through the lens of what he had experienced on the Damascus Road. Somehow, the perfection, the holiness of Almighty God, Yahweh, is not against my experience of grace that I met this man, God-man named Jesus on the Damascus Road. Somehow, those two things come together. And I think Paul understood after those three years. The point is not that we are to attain to the perfection of God in this lifetime, because we cannot. Paul is acknowledging that. He's saying, look at me. I try to kill the church. There's nothing good within me that should be publicized. And where Jesus goes, wow, that's why I chose him. In fact, Paul looks at himself and says, I don't know why he chose me. I believe Paul spent those three years going back to the Old Testament and finding traces of grace. Relearning, restudying all that he had memorized in the Pentateuch in the law, in the prophets, in the minor prophets, in the wisdom literature, in all of these things to come to an understanding. Oh my goodness. The point was never that the moment Adam walked away from the garden was that he had to become perfect because he couldn't. No man could be perfect. No man could measure up. I was a fool to think that I could through this system, through the law, through Judaism. And it wasn't until Jesus had exposed his folly that grace clicked. I think that's what Paul did for three years. And I think that's precisely the reason why, as he is defending the gospel against these Judaizers, he's not leveraging his apostleship. Because if he leverages his apostleship as an apostle, then he's no different from these guys. He's just waving a title in front of their face. But to make the point about the reality of the gospel and the authority that it carries, he says, to prove and to show and to display 
the authority of the gospel, I must then show all the ways that I have lacked for the gospel to authoritatively apply to me. Which is to say this. The gospel, to be saved, to come to faith, you can't add works to it. You can't add your goodness to it. And I'm not saying that your goodness isn't good. I'm just saying that it's not good enough to be God good. You guys know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine God good versus our good? Like, if I walk an old lady across the street, right, that's not evil. That's good. You know, you, man, Pastor Billy, good job. You helped someone. But could you imagine God walking a lady across the street? <laughs> I don't know. He'll probably just teleport her, right? Yeah. Yeah. My, my yoke is easy. Yeah, don't walk, right? <laughs> See, our goodness are mere shadows of the goodness of God. I think Paul understood that. And I think that's what the gospel calls us to understand. You are not acceptable because you can provide something perfect. But your acceptability comes from someone else's perfection. See, because God doesn't sweep our imperfection under the rug. He doesn't deny our sin. But God has provided a way where he can deal with our sin with someone who could. That is his son, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the problem in Galatia. That's exactly the problem that these people are facing. In the coming weeks, we'll come to see some of the crazy things that these Judaizers were forcing them to do. These Judaizers were saying, if you really want to be a Christian, all the men in the house, you have to be circumcised. What? We're adults. We could talk about this. Yeah. These Judaizers came. They were giving different laws about circumcision. Oh, you have to be circumcised. They were even bringing in different dietary laws, what you can or what you shouldn't eat. They were bringing in certain ethnic laws. They were saying, ooh, Peter, as we'll find in the coming weeks, you sure you want to eat with those Gentiles? I mean, you're a Jew, aren't you? There are traces of racism in Galatia. These Judaizers are coming in and they're setting up a tiered elitism that comes from this understanding that in order to be saved, you got to be different. You got to set yourself apart because the gospel, because Jesus, he just isn't quite enough. So let's make some additions. And Paul says, I'm not going to have any of this. I'm not going to have any of this. And to show you how, I'm not going to tell you what I'm not doing. I'm going to tell you all the reasons why I shouldn't be here. To show why this good news is so, so good. So verse 19. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Paul actually wrote that in his letter. I'm not lying to you. I'm, I promise this is what really happened. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. I love how Paul presents it. I was unknown. I was a nobody. In fact, Paul says, if I were a somebody, everyone was just scared of me. Because they thought I was going to kill them. That's how unknown I was. I was unknown in the way that I had been now become a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is how he finishes. They only were hearing it said, 
He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Translation, the most unlikely of people, not out of his goodness, but out of his crazed violence, has now become the poster boy for the Gentile mission. Jesus has chosen the least among the apostles, which is how Paul refers to himself. Verse 23, and they glorified God because of me. This is not him, Paul, being prideful. This is Paul saying, look, they glorify God not because of my goodness or my good works. They glorify God because of the goodness of God that became apparent in and through me. Paul's not trying to manipulate people here, friends. Because you see, if you want to manipulate the church, you want to manipulate, you want to coerce, easy formula. Tell people that they have to do something to be saved. Tell people that they have to do something to be accepted. Tell people that they have to present good works in order to be presentable in front of you, the community, and in front of God. Friends, Jesus does not walk to anyone and say, you have to do anything. Then it's not faith anymore. It's control. It is then control. The beauty of the gospel is not that it makes you do something. It causes us to want. What makes relationships beautiful? Gavin, if you want to be my friend, you better, I don't know, buy me lunch. (laughs) You better, if you want to get saved, Gavin, you better start reading your Bible every day. Oh, if you want to be saved, you better go out to morning prayer 24-7. What? (laughs) There's no more joy. There's no more choice. There's no more heart. Sisters, how terrible would it be if you get married one day and your husband brings you flowers and you go, oh my gosh, dear, it's so nice of you. And they say, I had to. (laughs) Brothers, the sisters aren't laughing because they think it's funny. (laughs) They're dying inside. (laughs) I would punch him. I would cast him out of the house. The beauty of our relationship with Christ and the beauty of the gospel is precisely that. Good things become great when you want to. But good things become nightmares when you have to. Good things are great because we want to. Good things are nightmares when you have to. So just because a person is in a position or in a place of authority. Biblically speaking, to be a servant leader as Christ himself was. The biblical model of authority never says, when you're in high places, look down. Jesus himself said, 
For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, if you have authority, get down and wash someone's feet. You leverage authority to bring people into high places, to bring people into freedom, to bring people into grace. And so the irony of Paul's presentation is that he doesn't even go out to establish his own authority, only the authority of the gospel. And yet, I bet, all the hearers in Galatia, as they were hearing this letter being read out from the pulpit, were thinking, I give that man authority. He has authority. Because he chooses to use it for all the right reasons. So what does the gospel assure us of? This gospel that Paul is now going to launch into the next five chapters to continue to expand upon, to talk about, to even understand the place where works goes in, in the scope of faith. But as a starting point, what does the gospel authoritatively assure us of? I think it assures us of this. The authoritative revelation of Christ in the gospel assures us that we are loved and accepted before we bring anything into the relationship. Let me say that again. The gospel assures us that before you make any move, before you do any good thing, you are already loved and accepted. Period. No ands, ifs, buts, plus, minus, add, takeaways. Just that. You are loved and accepted. That is the assurance of the good news of the gospel. The question then isn't, are you going to do something good to earn it? The question then for salvation becomes, are you going to step into it to receive it or not? Because that's all you can do with a good gift, is it not? I mean, I talked about this last week as well. But when someone gives you a gift, you don't go, here's $20 in exchange. That's offensive. Because the person is saying, I've already paid for it. I've already provided this for you intentionally. I thought about handing this over to you. The question of the gospel is not, what will you do? But it is simply, will you receive it? Will you receive the love and acceptance that's already been bought expensively through Jesus Christ's life himself? God died so that God could love us, his people. What more could you try to do to pay that back that would make your form of payment worth anything in comparison to the Son of God? This is the very thing that Paul is trying to cut straight through the community and say, you must get this right. You have to hear me out on this. Now, so here's the question, practically, that I want to hinge on as we come to a close. You're thinking to yourself, Pastor Billy, this is great. This is good. The gospel assures me that I'm loved and I'm accepted. But we got to go back to what Paul said in verse 11, 
So I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel is preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if there's authority in the revelation that Paul received through his vision and his encounter on the Damascus road, you got to be asking yourself, well, don't I need one of those too? If the gospel I believe in, if the gospel I present is going to have weight and authority. I mean, but when's the last time any one of us was on the road going to the train station on our way to school, on the way to work, and suddenly you were blinded and people around you could hear Jesus talking in Korean. Right. That's really, I haven't had one of those. If what was authoritatively revelatory for Paul was the appearance of Christ, but we don't share in that same experience on the Damascus road that Paul had, then what source do we have as authoritative to say this gospel's true? Otherwise, we could sound just like any other cult. Oh, I heard from Jesus. What'd you hear? That I am the next Jesus. We know that's not right. So where does our authority come from today then? If I said that our authority doesn't come from works, it doesn't come from any other man, but it comes from God, what has God given to us today where we can say this is authority? Answer, you have it in your hands. The word of God. The word of God in its design, was never meant for authorities to use to explain or justify away their way of lording it over or controlling other people. The word of God is his gift to his community, not just so that we can get smarter or sound good by spitting theology, but the word of God primarily, definitively, authoritatively is God's letter. It's God's provision to his people for us to clearly understand who he is. There is no source that stands higher than this. Some of you guys are thinking, oh, but what about dreams? What about visions? What about when God speaks to me? Friends, those things are real. I'm not diminishing those things. But let's hear what Paul has to say. You know what he says? He says, be eager for the gifts, but test all things. Test all things. Is it accurate to God's character as it's revealed in the word of God? Friends, I'm not speaking against prophecy or any of these things. But let me tell you, there's a reason why when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus road, he was convinced so quickly. Paul was arguably the smartest Bible theologian who walked the face of the earth in that day. I don't think Paul was just like, whoa, this is a very cool experience. Paul's thinking, oh my gosh, this is a theophany. God is showing up. And when God shows up, by virtue of what I've learned in Genesis, when God shows up with Adam and Eve, oh, and God shows up with Moses, and when God shows up, oh my goodness. Paul could interpret and understand because he knew. Paul wasn't walking in as an empty slate, but he was a theologian. And so some of us today, this is where I want to hinge on, friends. To grow deeper 
in your awareness of Christ's love and acceptance, it doesn't mean that you just need to hear another message. It doesn't mean that you just need to go to another conference. It doesn't just mean that you need to talk to another person as though the person, him or herself, carries the inherent authority. The answer is, you need to meet with God. Where do you meet with God most clearly? In His Word. His character revealed by how He has dealt with other people throughout history. How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that God loves you in the midst of your sin? Well, God said, I love a guy. His name is David. I loved him so much that I made him king. I love him so much that every time there's a genealogy of Jesus, his name is always mentioned. I love David so much that I say that he is a man after my own heart. And yet, how do I know that God loves us through the example of David? David himself was a murderer. David himself was an adulterer. David was all the things that we should not be in our relationship with God. And yet God looks at him and says, I love you. How do I know God loves us? How do I know God accepts us? Because I just heard it? No, because of how I see the way he treated Adam and Eve. Adam sinned. God, in every right, with every right that he had, could have just slain them. But what does he do? Shows them grace. He gives to them what they don't deserve. Out of his love for them and says, I will one day satisfy justice for the sins of men. But it won't be through you. It will be through my own son. Friends, I firmly believe. Experience, yes, it's important. Because in the end, what we share with others is our experience. However, the assurance that you can find in your experience is dictated by, is governed by your awareness of God through what he has revealed in himself. Otherwise, you have all these experiences, but you don't know which of your experience is God. Which of my experience is me? Which of my experience is the enemy? I'm not calling us as a church to all of a sudden be scholars. Some of you guys who are in school are saying, thank you. <laughs> but I am calling for this. That you can't love someone you don't know. But just because you know doesn't mean you love them either. But you got to know to love. I've been married for five years now. And I still find out stuff about my wife. It just occurred to me relatively recently that my wife loves navy colored clothing. Now check this out. My wife also loves Japanese food. She loves things like sushi. Now, just because I know those things doesn't mean I love my wife. But because I love my wife, I want to know those things. You can't love who and what you don't know. But just because you know doesn't mean you love. Friends, my excitement over scripture. I'll be honest, when I first got saved, I was so excited to learn the Bible because I wanted to be that guy. The five points of Calvinism? Oh, yes. Oh, the five solos of the Reformation? Oh, proper hermeneutics? Oh, I'm your man. 
But over time, as God unveils himself through the lens of Scripture into the fabric of my life, I have found that the beauty of God's word doesn't come because it's just, that there's just something more to know. But I'm curious, who is this person who would love someone like me? What is it about you, God? What is it about who you are, the way you operate in history that makes you function the way you do? I want to know you. Shailen, my encouragement to you is this. You want to be unshakable. You want to be firm. You don't want to be tripped up by some person or some man who claims authority on his own behalf. Go to authority itself. Find your love for Scripture coming alive once again. My old disciple, I was so floored by this. I first met him when he was like my age. He was like 30, 31. And you know, he's, he's really smart, right? And I could tell, man, this guy genuinely loves Jesus. He's a good man. He's a peaceable man. He's a funny man. He's just a nice human being who really loves the Lord, who knew a lot of Bible. So I asked him, hey, out of curiosity, you seem to know a lot of scripture. You seem to love Jesus. You seem to be a nice man. How many times did you read the Bible? He said, I think I'm like on my, on my 50th reading. Some ridiculous number. More, more than his age. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. I was floored. And he said, and I'm still confused. Now, when I first heard that, I thought he meant, I'm still confused by the meaning. But nowadays, I wonder if what he meant was, I'm still confused as to the love that this God exhibits and shows to all men as revealed in the Word. You are loved. You are accepted. But you don't need to hear that just from me. I pray that you would find the reality of that gospel as you seek it out for yourself. Let's pray.